Could you keep your Bibles open there at Acts chapter 2? Taking a break from our Timothy series for today. We'll continue back uh, in 1 Timothy uh, after Spago. So 1 uh, Acts chapter 2, and it's on page 1096 in case you've lost the page like me. Lead us in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit uh, who inspired your word to be written. And we pray that your spirit would be working in our hearts now um, to respond to, to, to you properly uh, and to glorify the name of our Lord Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. On your way in, you also receive one of these uh, outlines. And in the middle of that, there's, a, there's the outline of the, the sermon for today. Uh, you might find that helpful to keep, keep up where we are. Now today, many churches around the world are celebrating Pentecost. And the word Pentecost means 50. 50 days after the Passover, the ancient Jews celebrated another feast called the Feast of Firstfruits. Also known as the Feast of Pentecost, because it was 50 days after the Passover. It was a time when the wheat harvest was brought in. And special sacrifices were offered in thanksgiving. So Pentecost is actually a Jewish harvest festival. In New Testament times, Jews from all over the known world used to come back to Jerusalem for the feast. It's a bit like Chinese New Year or Hari Raya. Lots of people balik kampong to Jerusalem. And so the city was full of people at those times. Now one of those occasions the one that we're particularly looking at today, was a very significant one. In fact, the whole year had been particularly tumultuous. Lots had been happening. Jerusalem was awash with everyone talking. For Jesus, the teacher and healer, who done all those miracles, had come to town. He had initially been greeted as a hero. In fact, by some as the Messiah the king that God had promised in the ancient scriptures. But he had clashed again and again with the religious leadership of the city. And within a week of his arrival, his fortunes had changed dramatically. A hastily assembled Jewish court had tried him for blasphemy and found him guilty. They handed him over to the Romans with a charge of treason because they knew they had the best chance of nailing him on that one. And under pressure from the Jews, the Romans had him executed at the Passover. They did it in a way they'd done with countless criminals before that. Nailed him to a wooden cross and allowed him to die slowly. And everyone thought that that was the end. But then something happened. The tomb which had been guarded by Roman soldiers and, and sealed with a Roman seal with a large stone was, was suddenly inexplicably empty. The authorities claimed that the disciples had stolen the body, but people knew how unlikely that was under the circumstances. And there were rumors. People were saying that they had seen the risen Jesus. That they had walked with him, and talked with him, and eaten with him, and drunk with him. Not just one or two people, but, but lots of them. Including one incident with over 500 people at one time. Yet, there were no public speeches, official pronouncements. Not yet. People telling other people about their encounter with Jesus who had been dead. His actual followers, his close friends, who were with him before he died, 
stuck together. There are about 120 of them. And they were together when we get to verse 1 of Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 verse 1 starts with a, word, with a phrase, when the day of Pentecost arrived. Another way of translating would be to say that when the day of Pentecost was fulfilled. And fulfilled is a good word because what the Feast of First Fruits, Pentecost, was pointing forward to was the first fruits of the harvest of people who would come into the kingdom. And this was the fulfillment of it. So on that day, the believers were together in one place, and then it happened. The Spirit was poured out. And associated with that, there were three amazing phenomena. First of all, verse 2, there was a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Gale force storm. That kind of noise filled the whole house where they were meeting. Those who thought about it later might have remembered the, the great wind that God sent to, to haul back the waters of the Red Sea as the people of Israel were to cross when he rescued them from Egypt 1,500 years before. Or they might have been reminded about the breath or the wind or spirit that the prophet Ezekiel had said that God would breathe into the, the dry bones of the nation. He went, bring them back to life, restore them after the judgment that he had put upon them. See, God's Spirit was bringing about a new, a renewed people. He was restoring Israel by giving those who believed in His Son a new life as the people of God. And secondly, there was a fire that appeared among them. We see that in, uh, in verse 3. And those who thought about it later might have remembered how God led His people out of Egypt with a pillar of fire. When he, when, he, when he created his Old Testament people. But the difference was this fire divided up into tongues or flames and rested on each one of them. The signified God's presence wasn't just with them as a people, but individually. In Numbers 11.29, Moses wished that all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord would put his spirit on every one of them. And here at Pentecost, his wish became true. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Later on this year, we hope to do a topical series on the Holy Spirit, and we'll, we'll see that whenever someone in Acts is filled with the Spirit of God, they speak the Word of God. And this is no exception. The fascinating thing, though, in this case, is that they did it in other tongues. The third phenomenon. Now, when it says they spoke in other tongues, it doesn't mean they had a second tongue coming out of their mouth, which, which they, you know, spoke, right? Neither does it mean they were talking garbage. They weren't saying something that no one can understand. Now that might have been happening in Corinth, right? But it's certainly what was happening, what was not what was happening at Pentecost. Remember, the word tongue in Greek and even in old language, old English, means language. We still use it today in some ways. We say your mother tongue is a language that your mother taught you when you were little. Right. These people spoke in other tongues. They spoke in other languages. Languages that they had not learnt. Now, why were they speaking in languages they hadn't learnt? Why did God do such a miracle so that people from all over the world could hear them declare the mighty works of God in their own language? What's the meaning of it? 
Well, first of all, from the big picture of the Bible, we, we can work out that it's all about God gathering his people. Remember, all the way back, the beginning, near the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 11, we read like the opposite of this happening in, 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 in Babel. Right back then, human beings got together to build a city with a tower that reaches up to the heavens. And they tried to make a name for themselves, to prevent themselves from being scattered around the world, which God actually told them to. They wanted to create a united society for themselves, for their own glory, for their own security. Huge tower without reference to God. Tried to build utopia by building God out of the picture. And gone and thrown on high, saw their towers, which they thought was so big, was really, really small and puny, he had to come down to see it, and he brought judgment upon it. And he scattered the people. He did the exact opposite of what they were trying to avoid. And he confused their language, frustrating their ability to communicate. You see, human attempts to build society without God, that's, that is sin at its height. And God would have none of it. And so he confused their languages, and when they spoke, they couldn't understand each other. And he scattered them over the face of the earth in judgment. Confusion of languages and scattering is judgment. But God's plan was not just to scatter. For while he judged the people of Babel for trying to create a united society without him and against him, he himself would create a truly united society, united under him. And so while God scattered the rebellious people at Babel, he planned to gather his own people under his own loving rule. And he started off in the very next chapter in Genesis 12 with a man called Abraham. And he made him promises of people, blessing, nation, promises that would later be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so once Jesus had died and risen, and ascended as king, it was time to start gathering once again. If judgment meant scattering, salvation means gathering. And so God was beginning to reverse the judgment of Babel. In Babel, the sign of judgment, the, the precursor of the scattering was the confusion of languages. And here in Jerusalem, the opposite was happening to what happened in Babel. Babel, people were suddenly, inexplicably, unable to understand when they spoke, even though they learned the same language. In Jerusalem, people were suddenly and inexplicably able to speak and understand each other in different languages that they didn't know. Babel, people scattered across the world in judgment. In Jerusalem, God was not only restoring Israel, but starting the process of gathering his people from all the nations. And of course it started with the Jews, as God promised. Israel herself had been scattered among the nations as part of God's judgment upon them. And God had promised in the Old Testament over and over again that he would bring back Israel from the four corners of the world under his loving king. And so this was about to happen in a representative way. Men of Israel, as Peter would call them, Jews who had been scattered throughout the nations, were the ones whom God was gathering at Pentecost. So Pentecost marks the regathering of Israel from the nations. God regathering his people under Jesus, his promised king.
later on in the book of Acts, two other groups will have a, two plus one other groups will have a mini rerun of Pentecost to show that they too were engrafted into the new people of God. When the gospel first goes to the Samaritans, the people from the north, the, the, the old northern kingdom, in Acts 8, they would have their own mini Pentecost. And when the gospel first reaches the Gentiles, represented by Cornelius and his family, that would happen again. Also an extra one, when the disciples of John the Baptist, which seem to be like out on the limb uh, in all this, are brought in when they, when they hear about Jesus. So the Spirit would come upon them. And they too would speak other languages, just like the Jewish Christians had done here at the beginning. It didn't happen to every time that within each of those groups, but when it crossed that new group, that's when it happened. And it was a sign that God was gathering together, not just the Jews, but people from Northern Kingdom, Samaria, not just Judah, but also then Israel, and then the nations. And Babel would be reversed. And God's people would live together with him once more. Now friends, that process of gathering, that's still happening today, isn't it? Since the day of Pentecost and those, and those extensions of Pentecost, God has been gathering his people from all over the world. Men and women from every tongue and tribe and people and nation are coming in. The process of gathering is still taking place. That's what God's doing in the world today. He continues his, his, his plan of salvation and gathering people under the kingship of Jesus. Let's go back to see what happens at Pentecost. The disciples speaking all these different languages. The crowd bewildered. What's going on? They say, these are, these are Galileans. These guys come from the, from the Ulus. Yet here they are speaking fluently in all these different tongues. No matter where we come from in the world, we hear them in our native dialect, speaking the mighty works of God. Some of them joke, you know, these guys must be drunk. I don't know what they put in the tiger beer nowadays. That's when Peter took the lead. Standing with the other apostles, he spoke to the crowd. First public proclamation of the gospel. First evangelistic sermon ever. Because remember, the way God gathers his people under his king is through the proclamation of the gospel. The gospel calls upon people to come to the king to submit to him. Jesus had just said the gospel he preached to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. As so here in Jerusalem, Peter's about to start the process of taking the gospel to the world. So Peter preaches that son. Now, some of us might be a little bit surprised when we read his sermon, that on his sermon on the day of Pentecost wasn't all about the Spirit. Right? But we shouldn't be that surprised because Jesus had said that what the Spirit would do is testify about him, would glorify him. And so Peter does talk about the Spirit, but his speech centers not on the work of the Spirit, important as that is, but on the death, life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And in his speech he explains the phenomena that the crowd is seeing, but in such a way as not so much to draw attention to the phenomena, but to the Saviour. Because that's what the Spirit does. Genuine work of the Spirit points people to Jesus. Peter starts his speech by addressing the immediate issue the crowd is asking. In verse 14 he says, 
Peter standing with the eleven lifted up his voice, dressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Well, it seems um, back in those days people only got drunk at night. So they weren't drunk. The reason they were acting so strangely was because prophecy was being fulfilled. God was pouring out his spirit. Verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Notice Peter saying, this is the last days. Christians often make a mistake of thinking the last days are the years just before the second coming of Jesus. Right? Peter's telling the crowd 2,000 years ago, the last days have arrived. Because right? the last days is the entire time between the death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus and his second coming. Nothing, there's nothing of significance. No, the Holy, nothing of significance happens between death, resurrection, ascension, pouring out the Spirit and Jesus coming again. Right? So that whole period... It's the last days. Peter's saying, that's the last days. The last days now have arrived. Right? And he quotes the prophet Joel uh, to, 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 from the Old Testament. Now, Joel had predicted in chapter 2 of his book that God was going to perform a mighty act of judgment on his people. talks about a mighty act of judgment. And then afterwards, after the judgment, he will have pity on them and restore them. He will give them great blessing. He himself will live among them. He will pour out his spirit upon all people, not just the prophets like before. And after that, beyond that, there will be a future day of universal judgment. The great and glorious day of the Lord. And those who call on the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, will be saved on that day. Now, Peter picks up the last part of Joel's prophecy in verses 17 to 21. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter is saying, look, this phenomena that you're seeing is a fulfillment, partial fulfillment of this prophecy. It's the pouring out of God's Spirit after a great act of judgment. It's a sign that God's people are being restored. And it's a warning of another judgment which is to come. And the only way to be saved from this other judgment, verse 21 again, is to call upon the name of the Lord. And the Lord that, Yah- that Joel was referring to was Yahweh, the God of Israel. And Peter's about to show the Israelites gathered that this Lord, this God of Israel, upon whose name they must call in order to be saved from the future judgment, is nothing, no one other than the Lord Jesus himself. And he starts off by reminding them about Jesus' life and ministry. Now, they all knew about him. Everyone in Jerusalem knew about him. They knew he healed the sick with just a word. 
that he fed huge crowds with small amounts of food, that he made the blind see and the lame walk and the dumb speak, and that he cast out demons with a word. They might have even heard about his power over the wind and the waves. They knew that he was accredited by God. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. And you raises Jesus. You know him. And then he drops a bombshell. Verse 23. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucify and killed by the hands of lawless men. He was attested to by God. He proved in no uncertain terms that he was God's promised one, but you crucified him. You had him killed. You did it through the Romans, people who didn't know the Old Testament law, but you knew the law. You should have known better. You are guilty of this man's blood. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan of full knowledge of God. Yep, God was still in control. Part of his plan. But you killed him. Peter's pretty brave, isn't he? Speaking to a big crowd, talks to them straight. What's God's response to the murder? Verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You killed him, but God overturned your decision. God raised him up, freed him from death. It was impossible for death to, to keep him down. Because it had been prophesied that he would rise. Peter quotes King David's words from Psalm 16 in verse 25 onwards. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades and let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. But says, this psalm says that God will not abandon his king, his holy one, to the grave. But David died and was buried. His tomb was still there in Jerusalem. And it wasn't empty. For he must have been speaking of someone other than himself. Verse 29 to 31. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence that the patriarch David, about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Christ of Messiah is God's promised king. So David in the psalm was speaking about the true king. The one who would fulfill all God's purposes. The one of whom his own kingship was just a shadow, a sign, a pointer. This king, the real king, would be raised from the dead. His flesh will not see decay. And then Peter tells him, look, this is who the real king is, verse 32. This Jesus, God raised up. And we are all witnesses. 
Jesus' grave was not empty. God brought him back to the dead. Now, if, if David has said that the, that, that the real king is the one whom God raised from the dead, and Jesus, we know God has raised from the dead, it proves that Jesus is the promised Messiah. The disciples were eyewitnesses of the risen Jesus. He had been raised, and God had shown that he was indeed the one Israel had been waiting for. The one the prophets had prophesied about. The one that David had written about. The whole whole Old Testament was pointing forward to. He was God's king through whom God would rule his people. Not only Israel, but the nations. The one under whom the people of God would come. Jesus was killed. Jesus was raised. Where is he now? Verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. See, the risen Jesus has been exalted. He is the King who reigns in heaven. And having been glorified, and having received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he is pouring out this phenomena. What you see and what you hear, the mir- these miracles, Peter says, these are nothing other than the work of the risen, ascended Jesus. They show that he has indeed been exalted to the right hand of God. That he's indeed been given the place of the highest authority in the universe. And so what will happen next? Well, he quotes another psalm, Psalm 110. Verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord, Yahweh, says to David's Lord, in the psalm, we don't know who that is, he says, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What do you put your feet up on? Now, my Lord wasn't referring to David. David never ascended into heaven, Peter says. Never ascended at God's right hand. But Jesus, David's Lord, did. And so the psalm is referring to him. And what does God say to him? He says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Until I bring judgment upon the nations and the peoples who try to resist you, who will not accept your rule. Reign with me until I, you can put your legs up on them. Until I destroy those who oppose you. So you don't want to be on the right, the wrong side of this ascended king, do you? Therefore, Peter says in verse 36, that all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Israel had rejected Jesus, but God had vindicated him. God made him both Lord and Christ. And the Lord is the title the Jews used for God. And Christ is the King or Messiah. God the Father made Jesus both Lord and Christ. Already identified as King as his baptism, appointed in King as King in fact, now he enters into his kingdom. He is Lord, equal to the Father from the beginning of time, but humbled himself as a servant. And now he is made Lord to share the Father's throne when he is exalted on high. God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucify. Now for many of the Jews who are there, that 
something went click. Spirit must have worked in their hearts. Everything fell into place. The life and death of Jesus. Reports of his resurrection they couldn't disprove. The Old Testament prophecies. And now this amazing phenomenon they were seeing. And they knew they'd done wrong. God had fulfilled his promises in Jesus and they were caught on the wrong side of him. And they knew what to expect from Psalm 110. You to expect God's judgment. And so how did they react? In verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? We've sinned, we've done wrong, we, we, we've failed to submit to God's king, we've rebelled against his rulership, we've, we've had him killed. What should we do? Can we ever be forgiven? Friends, the gospel the Spirit gave to Peter to preach is the gospel of grace. And so Peter says to them in verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. Isn't that a great message? It's a message not of condemnation, but of hope. That's not what they deserved. It's God's incredible response of love. What they did was truly awful, and yet they can be forgiven. And not only that, they could receive the Holy Spirit as a gift. And so forgiveness and the Holy Spirit were offered to them, if only they would repent and believe. And so Peter says to them, Repent, change your mind. Realize that you've been going the wrong way, that you've been thinking the wrong way about Jesus. Turn away from the way you were going before and start again. And as a sign of that starting again, be baptized. For everyone knew that in the Jewish culture, being baptized in someone's name meant being identified with that person. And so being baptized in the name of Jesus, King Jesus, Jesus Christ, to say, I now accept Jesus Christ as my King. And Peter says to them, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus, and God will forgive you. He will take you back as his people, under the kingship of Jesus. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise here isn't that you'll be able to speak in languages that you haven't learned any more than you'll have the sound of rushing wind or tongues of fire on your head. Those were the external signs, given a specific time to specific people for specific purpose. In fact, it's not even recorded that whether those who believed in Peter's message that day experienced that phenomena, but the phenomena's not what was promised. It's the Spirit that was promised. And the promise of the Holy Spirit is for you and your children and everyone whom the Lord your God calls to him. All who believe and trust in Jesus as King, for those who believe in Christ, are given the Spirit of Christ. To have Christ is to have his Spirit. To have the Spirit is to have Christ. You can't have one without the other any more than you can be friends with me and not my brain. It's only when the Spirit's at work in our heart that we come to faith in Jesus. And the Spirit who created and restored Israel, created the new people of God under King Jesus in the day of Pentecost, makes us part of that people 
when we believe in Jesus, in the one Spirit, we are all baptized into one body, the people of God. Many Jews believed the gospel message that day. Verse 41 tells us that 3,000 people recognized their need for forgiveness and were baptized. They received the Holy Spirit. And they devoted themselves to following Jesus. To live with him as their Messiah, their King. And they became the first fruits of the harvest that was to come. Because that's what the Old Testament Pentecost was about, wasn't it? Harvest festival when the first fruits were offered to God and what a fitting time to start the process of gathering God's people, this harvest, from all over the world through the proclamation of the gospel. Friends, nearly 2,000 years have passed since that Pentecost day and the gospel message that Peter gave has been echoed by millions and millions of spiritual people ever since of proclaiming this good news around the world. And through it, God is still gathering his people to himself all over the world. And those of us who are trusting in Christ, we are among the people whom he has gathered. Like the first believers, we have been given the Spirit of God. With them, we have been given new life among God's people. We have been made part of the harvest that he is gathering. And with them, we are proclaiming the gospel message. That Jesus was an innocent man because of his God's great love suffered for us and that the act of judgment that Joel had been had said would go out would happen before the pouring out of God's spirit was fulfilled when the judgment of God fell on Jesus when he died for us on the cross for our sins in our place and then we proclaim the message that he rose again that he ascended as king and sits at the right hand of the father in a place of ultimate authority and so that spirit-inspired message of the life, death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus is the gospel message which we believe and on which we make our stand. And even now, God pours out his spirit upon us and wealth of his people to enable us not only to believe but to proclaim this message to men and women from every tribe and language and nation. To declare to the world that the offer that God made on that day through Peter is still valid. For the promise of forgiveness and the Holy Spirit is not only to the Israelites and their children, but to all who are far off. To us, to our families, to our colleagues, to our friends, to people we want to reach and don't yet know. And through it, God will continue to gather his people in heaven around our Lord Jesus until the day comes when all God's people are gathered round his throne and the harvest of which Pentecost was the first fruits will indeed be complete let's pray Father, we thank you so much for pouring out your Spirit. Fifty days after that Passover, we thank you for your Spirit who enables us to believe in the Lord Jesus, 
who puts us into the family of God, makes us, makes us part of, of your people. Thank you that he has been at work in each one of us, bringing us in, gathering us as your people around the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the ongoing work of gathering that continues to take place. We thank you that as your spirit wields his sword, as your spirit-inspired gospel goes out, you continue to do that work. Father, we, we pray that each one of us here will be people on whom the Spirit works to give us faith in Jesus, to know Him, to speak of Him, and to live lives that reflect Him. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.